His career zigzagged from flying an Army helicopter gunship on combat missions in Afghanistan to working counterintelligence for the FBI to now writing suspense-filled novels based on the knowledge of his previous careers. Hello, I'm Robert Riggs. In my last episode, former FBI agent Don Bentley took us inside the training of special agents at the elite FBI Academy in Quantico, Virginia. After the FBI, Bentley launched a successful writing career. He intimately knows the subject that he writes fiction about. Don Bentley is the New York Times bestselling author of the Matt Drake series, spinning out potboilers about terrorism and intelligence operations. He has also written two Tom Clancy Jack Ryan Jr. novels. The latest on bookshelves everywhere is Zero Hour. In this second episode, we discuss Bentley's transition to writing and our individual association with the late Tom Clancy. Clancy, a legendary author, was known for his precise descriptions of everything he wrote about in his best-selling novels about spycraft and military weapon systems. Clancy turned his books into video games and spellbinding movies, starting with The Hunt for Red October. Here's my interview with veteran decorated Army helicopter pilot, former FBI agent, and author Don Bentley. So after I um, after I left the FBI, I went to work um, with some friends of mine who were veterans for a small company that um, that 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 uh, developed and helped marketed um, technology for for folks who were looking to um, penetrate the the special operations uh, market. And so for the next ten years, I worked for um, companies who who designed um, tools for folks in the special operations and intelligence communities. And so I got to for 10 years, um, besides my FBI time, besides my time in the military, meet the people and, and get to rub shoulders with the folks who uh, would be characters or could be characters in my novel. And so Matt Drake is a um, person who works for the Defense Intelligence Agency or DIA. And that's an organization not as many people have heard of. It's very similar in mission to the CIA, uh, but it is run through military channels. And so it is often has uh, the same mission set and there's some friction between the CIA and DIA because a lot of times they're working in the same territory. And as a novelist, that's great because friction and tension is what uh, makes people turn pages on the books. And so when I was kind of crafting my series and figuring out what I wanted to do, I decided I wanted to use somebody from the Defense Intelligence Agency. I also chose Matt Drake to be a case officer, which is kind of what in the intelligence community you call somebody who did what I did in the FBI, somebody who runs and recruits um, what they call assets for a living. And I, and the third kind of choice I made for him is I made him, as, as often people in the Defense Intelligence uh, Agency come from military careers, I made him as a former Army Ranger because I'd spent 10 years uh, working with people from the special operations community. And so those kind of things all combined into um, the person that was Matt Drake, if you are familiar with Nelson DeMille and kind of his John Corey series, he writes a very witty, funny first person um, protagonist. And I remember after reading my first um, John Corey book that was Plum Island, I told my wife, I said, you know what, I would go to the grocery store with John Corey just to hear him talk because he's so funny and that's so unusual in this genre. And so I've kind of 
followed that um, with Matt Drake. He's also kind of a witty first person protagonist. And it's been a lot of fun writing him. Like you said, Hostile Intent is the third book in the series. And that just came out um, here in May. And so it's 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 a lot of fun if you like kind of the espionage military thriller genre. Um, Hostile Intent actually takes place on the European field. I'd written the first two books, which were Without Sanction and The Outside Man focusing more on um, the typical Middle East threat. And and when I sat down to write Hostile Intent, I said, you know what, I'd love to write something in Europe because my last three years in the army were spent in Europe. And I'd love, one of my favorite books as a kid was Red Storm Rising, which was kind of the Tom Clancy's World War III fought on European soil. And I thought, you know, that'd be great to do as well. And so when I was writing this book almost two years ago, I said, what could I do that would be a conventional kind of military thriller on European soil. And I said, what? I'll write about a Russian invasion of Ukraine. And so that's what I wrote about. And then uh, nine months later, kind of fiction became reality. And it was a very surreal thing to watch. How close do you think you were to the real events that unfolded? Yeah, so I think um, I got some things right and certainly some things wrong. Um, I think the the biggest thing that I missed um, that I think most of the world Miss, mistook or, or missed as well was the ferocity uh, with which the Ukrainian people would fight for their country. And so that's been uh, as, as horrible it is, as, as the last uh, eight months have been, um, seven, eight months. I think that has been one of the most inspiring things is to see, especially with, frankly, what you've seen a lot of, whether it was Afghanistan, Iraq, things like that, of of, of folks where the American populace looked on and said, you know, why are the, Amer- the majority of the Iraqi soldiers just giving up their positions to ISIS? Why are not more Afghans fighting and resisting the Taliban? And we went from that to a, a country where, you know, one of the, the images early on in the war that will probably stick with me forever is kind of a, a night shot of a Ukrainian street where you see a Russian armored column turned down a corner And it looks like a meteor shower. And it's all of these Molotov cocktails that are raining down from windows everywhere. And you think those aren't soldiers. They aren't Green Berets. They aren't special operators. They're just men and women who are standing and fighting for their country, even if that means throwing throwing flaming bottles of alcohol at an armored column coming through. And it's just been, I think, awe-inspiring. Yeah, I've been so surprised by the resilience and the determination. Did you have any hint of that in your book or were you as sort of surprised as everybody? No, I think I was more, I looked at more at what the Russians had done the first time in the Ukraine and what they had done so successfully in Georgia. And frankly, what um, Vladimir Putin is famous for and and helped um, with his own rise to power is kind of the false flag operations that he was able to do. And so the Russians, um, up until this iteration of the Ukrainian um, invasion or Ukrainian conflict with Ukraine had been masters at working in the gray space, at setting the conditions for what would look like a Russian, an invitation for for Russia to come in and, and rescue the Russian-speaking people of Ukraine to, you know, in, in the thing I alluded to before is that Vladimir Putin came to power and used um, the, the first war in Chechnya as kind of his way to hold on to that power. And, and what he used as a pretext were a series of bombings um, in Russian apartment buildings that now most intelligence um, professionals believe was actually the work of the KGB. And so he did that very well, similar things in Georgia and similar things in the Ukraine. And so what I showed in my book is more what that would look like, how the Russians might try and set 
work in the gray space to set the conditions for a much more um, easier invasion of Ukraine from the standpoint where it looked like the Russians were moving in to, to rescue um, oppressed Russian-speaking Ukrainian peoples. And that, for whatever reason, was not the path um, that he chose to do this time around. And, and we saw that that has been spectacularly less successful. Did you anticipate the force multiplier that the Ukrainians would receive by the sophisticated weapons we and our allies have provided? No, and I think that is um, it's certainly a double-edged sword because I think it is good that we've done this, but this the entire the entire um, conflict in Ukraine comes back to nuclear weapons, and so if you look at Ukraine when it was a former Soviet republic at the time, it was. It had on its soil um, one of the largest repositories of nuclear weapons in the world, and the Ukrainians willingly surrendered that for a, a agreement signed by the United States, Russia, and the UK, among others, that would guarantee their territorial sovereignty in, re, in um, response for giving up their nuclear weapons. And so if you fast forward until to now, arguably one of the only things that could have prevented Putin from doing this invasion was a nuclear armed Ukraine. And frankly, that's one of the reasons that we treat Russia with as much reverence and respect as we do right now isn't their conventional forces, it's their vast nuclear armory. And so while I think it's great that we're arming the Ukraine and and have done that, we should have done that a long time ago, frankly, and we should have done it at a much faster pace because at the bottom line, the people of the Ukraine trusted in us, trusted that when we said we would guarantee their sovereignty, we were good for our word. And, and frankly, that has proven to be a bad bet for the Ukrainian people. And, you know, I've, I've been following how the Ukrainians are using kind of a do-it-yourself drone warfare and being very creative in what they're, what they're doing. Do you, do you see, what do you see coming of the way that changes warfare? Yeah, and so that's absolutely correct, but it did not start um, with the Ukrainians. So even if you look at um, the Taliban and, and, and ISIS, um, both of them have taken conventional drones that you can get off the shelf, you know, the phantom drones that are Chinese made, and have turned those into false force multipliers, whether that's very crudely attaching grenades or munitions to them, or is just using them as spotting mechanisms for um, indirect fire and things like that. And so certainly the Ukrainians have kind of have had the conventional backbone that the other two organizations didn't from the, from the standpoint of um, their own tubed artillery. And now with our um, rocket artillery that we've given them, whether it's HIMARS missiles or things like that, you're taking a drone that's a, you know, a $200 sensor and able to use that to take out, you know, a, a several hundred thousand dollar um, tank using a missile, using things like that, and so it's it is certainly upended um, what conventional war looks like. Now, a lot of folks who are military tacticians are are debating whether armor itself is now has now been um, relegated to the past by by um, shoulder by anti-armor missiles by drones and things like that. I, I wouldn't go quite that far because I think what you're seeing where armor works best is in a combined arms force where it's supported by dismounted infantry. And you can see that the Russians chose not to do that. And that is what part of what has let the uh, Ukrainians just decimate those early armored um, formations. But certainly the, the United States has had to come to a reckoning where 
in when we invaded Afghanistan very early in 2001, we had technology, a, a huge technological overmatch uh, against the Taliban. We they couldn't operate at night. We could. Um, we had just sensors and things that they had no no counter for. Now you look at that 20 years later. Not only is night vision um, very commercially aware, but they can match what we do with very cheap um, sensors, like what we're saying. And so this shift to a near peer engagement with China, where it's a very conventional force on force um, operation, is certainly worrying. But it's just as worrying now that you can have you know, a, a um, special operations force, a team of Navy SEALs coming in from the ocean to go mount an operation or a raid. And you can have somebody with a $200 drone that has it loitering overhead that's just watching that team come in, even though it's pitch dark outside. And so that has certainly changed things. And I think there are a lot of folks paying attention to how Ukrainians are successfully waging a regular warfare against the Russian conventional forces. Well, I recently went to see Top Gun Maverick, and I had, as a reporter, done a couple of documentaries out on carriers and all. But as I sat there and watched it, I really wondered if, you know, this is obsolete technology, that floating airfield in the in the world of what could be a swarm of drones coming in. Are you toying with that in any of your books coming up, that kind of thing? Um, yeah, I think I'm, I'm actually, uh, so my, my next two books, the the next one in my Matt Drake series is called Forgotten War. And so it actually takes place in Afghanistan um, during the fall of Afghanistan, which was uh, you know, about this time last summer. Because like most uh, veterans who served in Afghanistan, you just watch what unfolded um, last summer with just disbelief and, and trying to process, you know, what does that mean? Was it even worth it? What, you know, what do we even do with that? And so that was kind of Forgotten War was written um, very much out of a response to that. And then my current, the current book I'm working on right now is actually takes place in the South China Sea and has a, a very much, it's a, it's a Tom Clancy book that has that kind of focus. And so I certainly, um, I certainly have integrated more of that technology. And, and there's another one that we hadn't talked about that isn't um, necessarily commercial off the shelf like those drones, but in in zero hour, I make use of something that's called the switchblade, which is another kind of a a halfway point between a very conventional drone um, that you could buy off Amazon and a munition. And so you literally now have um, munitions that you can fire out of a little tube and and that can loiter overhead and then turn into suicide bombs. And so. The, it certainly is um, where if you would have looked in the 80s in the Cold War, what you had were these massive force on force. You think back into the old cat and mouse game played by um, by Soviet and, and, and Western submarines that are tailing each other. And those are billion dollar endeavors. You know, I think that the Typhoon class, the last ones the, so- the Soviets did were 1.2 billion a copy, right, that are incredibly expensive, incredibly high technologically advanced platforms. And now what you're seeing is much more of a push down to the individual soldier level, how we're making the individual soldier or Marine more lethal by giving them access um, to weapons and technology that, you know, maybe we would have dreamed about a long time ago, but certainly would have never thought that, you know, going back to your Ukrainian thing, that individual um, soldiers with a day or two of training could take these javelins and just decimate Russian armored formations with them from 
from rooftops or houses or stuff like that. It's certainly it's the way that wars is is waged is certainly changing right in front of our eyes. Well, I, I, I wish Tom Clancy was still with us. I'd love to see what he concocted, imagined with warfare, with what we're seeing today. And you write under his banner now. How did that come about? Yes, yeah, so very, very fortunate in that um, all, I think everything good that happens in writing is, is two factors. And one is, um, is showing up every day and working and, and being good enough to be out there. And the second part is a little bit of luck. And that even, uh, even uh, pertains to, to Mr. Clancy. And so you were, you were talking about before the podcast that you had, had um, read some of his work or read um, Hunt for the Red October when it was still published by the Naval Institute Press, which was a small, still is a small press. And uh, it was selling well, but nowhere near the magnitude it is now. And, and what changed for him is that somebody somewhere got a copy of that book into Ronald Reagan's hands and he was walking across and, and a reporter saw him and said, Hey, Mr. President, what are you reading? And he held up Hunt for the Red October. And he said, it's this book called Hunt for the Red October. And that completely changed the trajectory of Tom Clancy's career. And he was a fabulous writer before that. And maybe he would have broken out and still become who he was. But that luck combined with uh, his skill changed his career for certain. And so in my case, I'm very fortunate in that my editor is a guy named Tom Colgan, who's worked with everybody from Janet Ivanovich to Lee Child. And when Tom Clancy was still alive, my editor, Tom Colgan, was his last editor. And so after Tom passed away almost 10 years ago, the Clancy Foundation said, hey, we still want um, these works to live on. We want to have other writers come in and write in the universe that Tom created. And so... Tom Colgan has been in charge of finding those writers, of going out and finding who to bring in to do that. And so he was my editor for my Matt and Drake series. And after I turned in um, the second book, which was called The Outside Man, he asked me if I'd be willing to write in the Clancy universe as well. And that was kind of when he asked me that it was a little bit of a, I was like, what did he just say? It sounded like he asked me if I wanted to write Tom Clancy. And so it was, you know, like I said, if if 14-year-old me would have ever, if you would have told him that 47-year-old me would one day get a chance to write in the Tom Clancy universe, I'm, I'm quite certain he would have never believed you. And so it's been a, an incredible honor. And I'm, like I said, I'm working on my third book um, in that series right now. And so it's, it's really been a lot of fun. Well, I met Tom back in around 1984 when... Uh, the Naval Institute Proceedings published his book. It was the first thing that ever published that was fiction. Up to that point, it was scholarly works about defense, uh, strategic policy, and what have you. I was interested because I was cover. It was a correspondent there then. I was covering President Reagan's six hundred ship buildup and all. But I had a prior interest for being on a defense committee, and I just liked this stuff. And I remember reading the book, and there's something in the book, and I was like my God, this was top secret. You know, who declassified this? And uh, it had, it turned out it had been declassified, but I actually picked up the phone, found Tom in Southern Maryland at his insurance agency and called him and told him, you know, what I was doing and went down, had lunch and kind of struck up a, a little relationship. And uh, I would interview him. I did some interviews around the 600 ship Navy and all. But I'll never forget when the book got picked up by an agent. 
you know, they bought the rights from the Naval Institute. He had his first book signings at the Pentagon Bookstore, which is down the in the really basement of the Pentagon where the subway comes through. There's a shopping center there. And there was a line. I mean, the line was unbelievable. The military community loved it. And I hung out with him. And then his agent brought him the keys to a brand new Mercedes coupe convertible. And Tom looked at me and it was, he was amazed. He was like, oh my God, I never expected anything like this. It, it'll never get any better than this. What I found so interesting when I met with him and asked him about, how do you know about all this stuff? He really operated like an intelligence analyst. The man devoured everything, congressional hearings. He ferreted out all kinds of stuff and extrapolated from hearings. You know, he, he told me how he met a, a Russian submarine officer who said, who brought up Hunt for Red October, and he said, how did you know our people would react this way? And he says, because, you know, I, I read everything about you. Uh, and then I, I had a moment where I went, he would call me and we went over to the uh, Pentagon. John Lehman, the Secretary of the Navy, the architect of Reagan's 600 ship Navy, wanted to meet him. And I went over and I'm kind of in the background. I covered the Pentagon in those days. And I want to tell you, the brass was there. They all wanted their books signed and all. And Lehman went silent and he looked, he just gave this piercing look at everybody in the room and said, I want to know who gave this man a security clearance or all this information. And for a moment, it, people looked like they were going to choke. And then Layman started laughing and then everybody else started laughing. But he did tell me some of his best information, particularly from the British, came from retired officers. They were sitting around and didn't have anybody to command anymore, no one to talk to. And, you know. And then we fast forward a little. I remember later I'm going to see Tom doing more in, more interviews, perfect timing with Reagan's buildup. And now he had a really nice two-story home in Southern Maryland. Uh, not extravagant, but I remember interviewed him in his study and he was like, look at this. I've got shelves for my books. It doesn't get any better than this. And of course, we know it got a lot better. I mean, the next the next thing I know, he's got an estate on the Potomac and a tank at the gate. But he was such an interesting man of how he devoured information. And I don't know, have you, you know, the one of the things that struck me was that, you know, if, a, if an M16 fired around, you learn the whole history of the M16 and everything that happened in the chamber of the M16 and the velocity it was leaving the, the barrel. Do you still go into that kind of detail with your writing? So um, when when I got uh, the opportunity to write for this, my editor said he said kind of two things to me. He said, number one, I'm not I'm not hiring you to try and be Tom Clancy. He said nobody can be Tom Clancy. He said I just want you to to do what you do in the world that he created. And he said number two, what you'll find if you go back and read um, the early Tom Clancy books the pacing that he did was masterful then, but it's much slower than books are now that they, that you, he's like, go back and read them. Remember why you love them, but don't try and mimic that because number one, you're not Tom Clancy. And number two, the era that he wrote those in is significantly different now. And so I try to adhere to that. In fact, when I was writing my first Tom Clancy book that was called Target Acquired, I reread a number of um, my favorite Tom Clancy books like, um, 
sum of all fears and clear and present danger and and actually kept a list of these were the cool things Tom did, things that I loved as a writer. And, you know, one of the things in, um, I I believe it's sum of all fears where he actually makes you a neutron or, or, or an atom or something that is flowing through the nuclear bomb and going from part to part to part. And, and when he does it, it's fascinating with anybody else did it, you would be bored out of your mind. And so what I try and do is um, what Tom Clancy readers like is the, is the technical detail behind how military things work to be able to see what does, you know, what does, what, for me, like I said, when I read Red Storm Rising, then there's a scene where the F-14 is doing a strafing run on that Russian container ship. And I felt like I was in the cockpit of the F-14. And so what I try and do is bring enough detail so that the reader feels like they're in that cockpit or they're they're firing that weapon or, some, or something to that extent. But I do not, I know that I am not Tom Clancy. And that if I tried to talk to you about how a bullet leaves the, the chamber of an M16 in frame by frame detail, you'd make it about two sentences before you'd, you'd get rid of that book. And so that's kind of the balance I think all of us write is that you want to, and I, th- and I think especially since it's the world that he created, you come to it with a certain amount of trepidation because you you do not want to be the guy who, who torpedoes the Clancy legacy um, as, as you and you're you're frankly standing on the shoulder of giants of people like Mark Graney and Grant Blackwood and 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 Mike um, who who all wrote in that universe and, and wrote successfully beforehand and so I think when you come at you want to find some untilled soil something that you can dig into a little bit that that other folks have to to be kind of your contribution of the writer but I think you're also always acutely aware that you are playing with somebody else's toys in in a house that they built and, and that you're a guest here and that all of us are going to to leave the Clancy universe at some point and, and you just want to leave it better than you found it well, after his book, Hunt for Red October, I wanted to go to sea on the attack submarine Dallas and do a story. Go to sea for a while. And of course, I told Tom this and he, he rolled his eyes like fat chance. Well, I eventually did it. I eventually got the Navy to do it. A lot that helped was that I had had a top secret security clearance from the Defense Department back in Congress and they trusted me. And I had a good rela- working relationship, especially with the Navy did a lot of stories with them. But boy, what an experience that was. I'll, I'm going to put a link in the show notes to speak with, people can go see that. Uh, as we close out here, Don, t- uh, tell us where, where can you find our listeners, find your books? What's coming? What should they go look for? Or where should they start? Yeah, absolutely. So Everything, um, both of the series I write, my stuff as well as the Clancy stuff, you can find all that information on my website. And it's just www.donbentleybooks.com. It's just B-E-N-T-L-E-Y. You can also, while you're there, sign up for my newsletter. And that's where I do giveaways and tell you what's coming next and everything like that. And so the fourth book in my series is called Forgotten War. And that is going to come out in May of 2023. Like I said, it has takes place on two different timelines. So it takes place during the fall of Afghanistan, during our our, uh, our pullout in 2021, as well as an operation that kind of took place 10 years prior. And so it's, it's a ton of fun, um, two different timelines, and you get to see Matt and his best friend Frodo during their first combat tour in Afghanistan together. And then my next Clancy book will come out the following month uh, that does not have a title yet. And it will be 
like I said, kind of focused on the China threat in the South China Sea. So you can you can get my books anywhere that books are sold, and there are links through the website again. Don, one you know one thing I meant to ask you earlier, coming out of the FBI, FBI, what did you know that you had a book in you and that you wanted to do this? And did you have any writing experience, courses from college, anything? Sure. Yeah. So I've always been a storyteller. And and even as a little kid, I, I probably started writing my first book um, or my first attempt at a book in middle school and worked on a couple in high school and some in college. And so uh, one of the turning points for me is my uh, senior year of high school in the AP English uh, class. I had a fantastic teacher. Her name was Jill Easter. And we had an assignment to write a short story or, or something of that. And at the end of it, um, she pulled me up and said, and after the class had left and she said, you know, you could actually do this. You have what it takes to be a writer. And so, uh, I listened to her and went to college and majored in electrical engineering as all good writers do. And so it took me a while to, to figure out how to get back to that and to learn, uh, about 2001, I got more serious about writing and took some classes. And then actually after the army went back and got, uh, my master's in fine arts and writing popular fiction, but kind of came full circle. Um, when I made the New York Times bestseller list, I tracked her down on Facebook and let her know. And she actually came, she's retired now, long retired as a teacher, but she came to my last book signing in Cincinnati. And so I got to see her and, and point her out to the crowd and say, this is the teacher that inspired me to be a writer. So it was pretty amazing. Oh, that's what a great story about how that one teacher can have such a great influence on your life that you remember for your life. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Don Bentley, thank you for sharing uh, your stories with us. Thank you for your service to the country, both with the Army and the FBI. And uh, we look forward to talking to you again in the future and also reading your books. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Robert. You can find Don Bentley's work wherever books are sold. The latest in his Matt Drake series is Hostile Intent, and for Tom Clancy, it's Zero Hour. Join our True Crime Reporter community to receive more information about our stories. There's a red colored box to sign up on every page of our website at truecrimereporter.com. And if you have questions for me, email me at fan at truecrimereporter.com.